Hey guys. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Hello. This episode is sponsored by Hire.com. Hire.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal and accounting and tax support. And they'll give you $2,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $4,000 instead. Go sign up at Hire.com slash Freelancer Show. This episode is sponsored by Elixir Sips. Elixir Sips is a screencast series that will take you from Elixir newbie to experienced practitioner. If you're interested in learning Elixir but don't know where to start, then Elixir Sips is perfect for you. In two short screencasts each week, between 5 and 15 minutes, Elixir Sips currently consists of over 16 hours of densely packed videos in more than 100 episodes, and there are more every week. Elixir Sips is brought to you by Josh Adams, expert rubyist and CTO of a software development consultancy, Isotope 11. Elixir Sips. Learn Elixir with a pro. Find out more at elixirsips.com. This episode is sponsored by Less Accounting. Let's face it, there are a lot of things about being an entrepreneur that we all hate. One of the things that I really hate is bookkeeping. Less Accounting has just started a new service where you can get your bookkeeping done for a really low cost each month. If you're interested, go to freelancershow.com slash bookkeeping to go check it out. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 157 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Eric Davis. Hello. Ruben Lerner. Hi, everyone. Jonathan Stark. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. One thing before we get started, I just want to remind everybody that I am putting together another remote conference. If you're into Ruby, go to rubyremoteconf.com and check it out. We should have the schedule up pretty quick here. So, anyway... Uh, this week, we have on the docket to talk about road mapping and estimates. My favorite things ever. <laughs> <laughs> Who suggested this, anyway? Uh, it might have been me. Road mapping as, a, oh, <laughs> as a general practice or for the show? <laughs> yeah, we should talk about that, too. So, yeah, so road mapping. This is where you etch in stone exactly when you're going to complete the task, right? <laughs> or at least that's what my clients so always think. Estimate. <laughs> now this is just an estimate you said <laughs> <laughs> right yes. am i right this I is yeah. just an estimate is an excellent way to um basically turn your clients deaf temporarily <laughs> yeah i think the best that i've done is i've offered a range i think it'll take between this many weeks and this many weeks or this many months and this many months and then um most of the time you know since i keep handing them a number with a hyphen in the middle, they kind of get the point and they're not upset until I go over the, the upper bound. Right. Well, and that's kind of what estimates should be. I mean, if you're lucky, they're an educated guest. So you mm-hmm. should tell your, you know, your client or whoever you're giving it to, you know, what's the lower bound, what's the upper bound. And something I do, and we can get into it in a little bit, is I also give a confidence. Like I'll say I'm 95% sure it's going to be in this range. If I'm, you know, if it's a good estimate or I've done it before or I'm, 40% confident it's going to be in this range. You know, I'm, I haven't done this before. I'm, I'm, there's a lot of risk there or whatever. Um, and I found that those really help a client understand, like, you know, it's going to be in here. It's going to be outside of it. What's, you know, what's something we should schedule up front? What's something maybe we should prototype to bring the estimate a bit closer? But it's, it's all about, like, kind of delivering information around what you're doing. Yeah, I would give my clients a confidence score, but they won't see it unless I come and wave it in their face when I miss the deadline. And I just don't think that would work out well. So, I mean, it might be different for different people. I mean, one client I'm working with right now, they really brought up the confidence score and they're like, what can we do to make some of these things more confident? I'm like, you know, in this specific case, I'm like, there's nothing we can do except for start coding on it or prototype it um, because it's unknown unknowns. We don't know how stuff's going to integrate together. But I mean, they, they saw that right away. Huh, maybe I'll try it then. Yeah, that's interesting. I've never heard of that. I avoid the issue completely by not doing estimates. So, you uh, you don't tell your clients when you think you're going to complete the engagement or get the work done that you agreed to. No. <laughs> <laughs> but but could it could it be Jonathan that you're not in the development business even when anymore? I did development? Yeah, it's partially that, but it, it's even when I did development, and I still do some development. I I won't commit to a deadline. Because I'm not in control of the deadline, so how could I commit to it? Doesn't right. make sense. 
because I have to I, virtually always the client is the bottleneck with something like a web design project. They'll go dark. They won't get content back to you. They'll be unresponsive because they get busy with an event or something. And, you know, I, I just can't. I'll say the, the most they'll get out of me is one of two things. One is there's no way this will be done before three months, you know, so they can mm -hmm. at least have some kind of scope. And I'll say if you respond to every email immediately and get all the content to me when I ask for it, we could maybe get this done in three months. But I don't have control over the deadline, so I'd be lying to both of us if I gave you a date that it's going to be done. Mm-hmm. I can and, I can identify with that. My current client, I mean, I did deliver on time. I told them twelve to fifteen weeks. Uh, they came back and you know at week fourteen said you said you're going to be done this week and I was, but there were two weeks in there where I was basically hammering things out with the hosting because uh, they went with Amazon AWS. They hired this expert guy to set it all up. And then since I had no controller access, when it didn't work, I had no way to figure out what was wrong. Mm. And so, uh, <laughs> and, and it took us about two weeks to figure that out. So, and, you know, and he's acting like I should just know how AWS Elastic Beanstalk works, which, <laughs> you know, I had never used it before. And so anyway, yeah, it's, it's that kind of stuff, right? It's like, look, this isn't my fault. And I would have hit the 12 week estimate if that hadn't happened. Did the amount that they paid you increase because it took 15 instead of 12 weeks or did you? Yes, because I was bid? I initially gave them a fixed bid and they came back and said, yeah, we're not we, we're not comfortable doing a fixed bid. And I said, OK, well, then we're going to do weekly billing and we're going to spread that weekly billing out across the 12 weeks. And if we go over it, then you're just going to pay more than I bid initially. So it did. It cost them an extra two weeks worth of pay. Yeah, so to your original question, there were actually two questions there, which is what do your clients say when you go past deadline? I say I don't give them deadlines or I don't commit to deadlines, but that doesn't change what they pay. Right. So I'll guarantee that it's going to cost whatever, $60,000. It's going to take at least three months. Maybe it'll take uh -huh. more. Depends on a million factors that are out of my control. Uh, but we'll get it done. You know, it's in both of our best interests to get it done as soon as possible because then I can move on to New York work and then you'll have your stuff. So, you know, uh, I, I totally agree. The weekly billing was basically, uh, well, if you're going to make me take the risk on you paying me regularly, then. Yeah. Why were they against a fixed bid? Was it just too high? I don't know, because they wound up paying that anyway. Yeah, mo most companies terms. prefer a fixed bid. No, like they know what their expense is going to be. So, I mean, it should be preferable to them, I would think, unless it's such a crazy high amount. Not that you're not worth a crazy high amount, Chuck, of course. No. But like, it could be, it could be that they believed that they'd get a better deal, or that you were just, you know, that they get a better deal for a, a, a variable bid. I doubt it, but it's possible. Yeah, or it could yeah, have been payment terms. Like, if if it's X thousand or whatever a week versus twenty, thirty, forty thousand upfront, and then another twenty, thirty, forty at the end, you know, just might have been easier to stomach little payments over time could be i don't know but basically yeah, i mean the bid was thirty six thousand, and i spread it out over 12 weeks so you can figure out what the weekly rate was and yeah so they wound up paying for two or three extra weeks <laughs> what i do is i we can get into it in a minute but i create a, a document i call it the trail map but in that i say like you know here's the estimates for all the features but when you assemble everything as a whole you know there's going to be integration there's going to be bugs there's going to be meetings like stuff like that and i actually Based on the project size, I'll say I recommend you add a 10%, 20%, 30%. You know, for some of the clients, I can tell they're going to be very, you know, you got to hold their hands, maybe like even a 50% buffer. So, you know, I might say it's going to take a week to do this feature. But when you add in the buffer, it might be, say, six days, seven days of development. And I make it clear to them, like, you know, if you want to, if you don't want to do the buffer, you, you know, that's fine. But you're probably going to lean towards the higher end and we're going to blow through estimates because we don't have that safety net. And I actually, I actually make it up to the client what they want to do. You know, give them all the data, give them all the options, let them make the decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I kind of take the same approach as far as like estimates and roadmaps go. So yeah, I, I write down all the features. I figure out about how long I think it's going to take, and then I yeah, I do exactly the same thing. I just I add a buffer on for how much longer I think it's going to take to do all the integration stuff, work with the client, do the meetings, talk to their ops people, whatever else. And then that's more or less what I, if I'm not talking to them about value, and sometimes that's hard, um, like with this client, they wanted something that looked like time and materials, even though it wasn't. And so, yeah, so that's how I came up with the bid for them. 
Yeah, but see, mine is, it's a transparent, like I tell them like, you know, here's the buffer I would put on it. I don't actually include the buffer into the estimates. Mm -hmm. And so that way they can see it versus it's kind of common wisdom of like, you know, make your estimate and then double it and tell the client that doubled number. So you have your buffer is um, opaque. They don't actually know that it's there. Um, I do it the other way around so they can see that I'm buffering this because of, you know, whatever particulars of the project. Oh, I see. That is pretty, I've never heard of anybody doing that. That's pretty cool. What, telling people that you're adding a buffer? No, like, yeah. like, well, in combination with the confidence level thing, that's pretty interesting. Right. It's, it's basically, it's exposing to the client the fact that software is, you know, and these projects are unknowable in many ways, but it's giving them a better sense of what's going on. Because when I say to people, well, that could take between, you know, two weeks and four weeks, it's hard for them to get a handle on that. First of all, they tend to be optimistic, and they're like, oh, that means two weeks, maybe three, right? Before would be the outer limits. When, yeah, and it's and always I've, I've gotten better. Right, I've gotten better over the years where I'm like, okay, it's not worth saying two to four. I'll just say four or four to five or four to six, and if I'm low, no one's going to complain, but if I'm high, everyone will. So, so here's um, my – I think there's a psychological problem with that that's on the developer, which is that the fish grows to fill the bowl. And if you put it out in the open, like Eric is drastically surfacing. Like I can't imagine a client walking away from a meeting with Eric and being like, oh, we thought this was the quote. Because it sounds like there's so much language and conversation around confidence level and low end, high end and buffer and all this stuff that, you know, he's exposing them to a lot of things. He's inviting them into the complexity of thinking about doing the estimate. Mm-hmm. It, it seems impossible for them to have for, you know, to like down the road when something jumps up to bite them or the project. It seems like totally impossible if you talk to the right people up front that they would forget all of that. Is that your experience, Eric? Yeah. And for a bit of context, so my road mapping goes either two ways. One, it's, hey, this is an interesting project that we need to figure out. Let's start a weekly billing and figure out the roadmap as we go along. You know, so the the classic lowercase a agile system. The other way is I sell what I call the trail map, which is a road mapping session where it's they pay a, a flat fee. I do a lot of the road mapping discovery stuff with them. And then they get a document called the trail map, which, you know, outlines where their project should go. And I'm, my sample I'm looking at is 25 pages long. I just did one for a client. I think it clocked in at 42 pages long. And I wow. mean, it's the, the sample one is 25. I'll, I'll show you guys a link. It's 25 pages long for a 15 week project. Like it's, you know, it's not a very large project I talk about, um, but it gets into all that it gets into the buffers, all that. So, you know, it's very, very detailed. It, my intention of this is that they can take this to another development company if they wanted to and have them work on it. But because I'm being so transparent, because I've thought through it, it's actually easier for me to do it than anyone else. You know, and that's I, a paid service, the trail map. Yes. Yeah, I, I do the exact, like you just exactly described how I would do a road mapping session for a dev project. So I've, I've sometimes pitched potential clients for, for project work on such a road mapping session. And they've never been so excited about the idea. You know, and maybe I just haven't pitched it well. So how do you, how do you go to them? Or, or, well, first of all, do you do this with all clients or just some clients? Like, are some more appropriate for it than others? And second of all, how do you pitch it to them such that, they're, that they see that it's in their interest? Because I, I believe it is. I believe it's in everyone's interest. So like I said, it depends on the client. Uh, some people, they have a small scope or they know exactly what they want. And so the first few emails will get a little bit of information about you know the project scope and then I'll get on my intro call with them, talk about it. And if they have kind of like a good, good idea and I can tell like, yeah, they're not, you know, wanting like basically Microsoft Windows developed in two weeks. Um, then I can, I might recommend like, Hey, here's the two options I'd recommend. We just get started. You know, I can commit to a one or two week project right now. I think that's going to be enough time for you. We can readjust as we go. Um, or some people, they just, they don't, they know they don't know what they want. And they're willing to just get in and start working on it. And then each week during the reviews, like decide if they want to buy more time or, you know, basically a really flexible schedule. Other people I've run into are like the very, I don't want to say button down, but kind of like they have a very rigid process, you know, step one, step two, step three. And for them, they like the idea of before starting the project, having everything documented, you know, they'll know 
approximately, because, you know, these are estimates, but they'll know approximately their cost, the time, how long it's going to take to do. And so I'll say like, you know, for something of this, the project of this size, if you're not willing to do it kind of on the fly as we go, I have this other service called a trail mapping service. Basically, I'll, I'll interview you, I'll go through your project documentation and I'll assemble what I think would be the project plan to actually build the software you want. I'll include estimates and kind of some ranges you kind of get an idea of where your risk areas are, where your non-risky areas are. You know, maybe there's some opportunities you haven't thought of you can take advantage of. Um, and basically at the end of it, you'll get this document that you can review and either decide to work with me or work with someone else. And, you know, basically it's something you could take to someone and actually like start the engagement with. And so yeah, in, in, in many ways, it sounds like, so, so you're, you're saying to them, I'm not going to figure out what features you need. I mean, that's obviously part of it, like, but I'm going to figure out where the, the major wins are and the major risks are, and I'm going to identify those for you. And right there, like identifying the risks is helping to reduce them, and that's what people want, reduce the risks. Risk so that sounds like a huge win. And I, right, and, and I assume also that as you learn more about what's going on and as you can come up with suggestions, then the confidence level of your, est- of your estimates increases. You know, I see here just the document you showed us, shared with us here, like 90% confidence, 70% confidence, and so forth. Um, whereas if you, you know, we're just talking for an hour or two, you'd probably be at 20% confidence. Right. And like a big thing is, it's like one client I'm working with right now where I did this for, um, they don't have an IT department. They don't have a development team. They don't have like technology people in the company. And so for them, a huge risk is if we build a custom application, or I say we, if I build a custom application and it goes down, there's no one there to manage it. And so even though I don't recommend it for most of my clients, I recommended a completely managed system using like Heroku and said, it's going to cost you more. It's going to cause a bit more pain in the development just because of limitations on the platform. But you have a huge like infrastructure risk here. And this is one way to mitigate it. Um, another would be to hire, you know, an engineer for, you know, 50 to 100,000 a year. And so I basically got compared and contrasted that for them. And they're like, yeah, let's go with that hosted platform. That's going to be a good option. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a great contrast. How, how long does your, your trail map product take? Like, you know, is this a week long project or is it usually a day long thing? I would say it takes two to three days. Total time is probably around eight to 10 hours, um, but it can be spread out. A lot of it is because it's meetings. So if, if I have to meet with a couple people trying to get it scheduled and then, you know, going back after that and, you know, if there's any follow up, I think I, I can't remember. I think I tried to commit to getting it to people within a week of after they buy it and we have it scheduled, but it typically takes about two or three days to kind of put together. Um, one client I did, we actually, went all the way through it were like at the final stages and then they had to completely rewrite the entire application so we had to start from scratch which it sucked for me because it is a fixed price service but you know the end result is they got a lot better a lot better picture of what they wanted to build mm-hmm. Ruben asked about how to sell it too and there's one thing that uh, I've found that is very helpful which is to say look we're going to have all these conversations one way or another through the course of the project Yep. It's going to be better better for everyone to front load it and then get all of the surprises or as many surprises as we can out of the way. And given the findings, I, same as Eric, you can take this document. It's portable. You can take it to somebody else to have them develop it for cheaper. I'm going to do the discovery part, which is the really tedious, painful, not fun part. And uh, if you want to go with me, great. If you want to go with someone cheaper, that's fine, too. But these conversations are going to happen one way or the other, and you might as well you might as well get it out of the way f- at first because you know making a change to the uh, the Mercedes at the end of the production line is a, a lot more expensive than making the change at the beginning. Yeah, there's actually a something, very clever way to say it. Yeah, there's actually something kind of a hidden thing in there, which one I didn't actually understand until one of my clients they didn't push back, but they mentioned it. They're like. You know, you gave us this trail map and, you know, we're, we're going to work with you on it, but is there any way that we could take this to someone else and have them do it faster? Like not cost wise, but timeline right wise, like they're, you know, we'll say it's a three month project. They wanted to do three developers for and make it a month long project. And so that's the other thing, you know, the trail map kind of gives them an idea of like, here's kind of, what is it called? Whatever. When you have a flow, like what's the the shortest possible route from A to B? Um, it can give them an idea of that. And if they could hire a larger team and get it done faster, or if the larger team is just going to be sitting there idle. And 
yeah, like blockers and dependencies in the yeah, exactly, the yeah, and and this client also asked like, or they they told me at the end they're like one big reason why they went off the trail map was because they were looking at alternative solutions. So instead of doing custom software, what if they paid someone to make a custom Google form for them or use like Wufu and just did all the stuff back office by hand? And so the trail map was actually cheap enough that they could do that as kind of an investigative to see like, you know, get them more details of, is it worth doing like this or should they just go with the manual route, not even use custom software for it at all. And so it actually gave them more options. It gave them more information to make in their, to decide in their business. That's good. That's good stuff. Yeah. No, I, I, I just coming back of saying that we're going to have these conversations one way or another, because we know that's true. Like anyone who has experienced in the software world, we know that we're going to have to talk to them about what they want to do and how they want to do it and, you know, walk through the features with them. And so we might as well just make it part of upfront conversations, get that out of the way and then have a deeper understanding of what's going on. And, and a part of it is also, I'm sure, I mean, the, the biggest thing is the trust, right? We, we've talked about this a lot on the show in the past, that like, at the end of the day, what's, the reason our clients are, are working with us and sticking with us is they trust our judgment. And I have to assume, not having done it before, but I have to assume that part of this uh, road mapping session convinces them, yeah, these guys really are in my corner. They, they really want me to succeed because they're asking the questions that demonstrate they want me to succeed, which can only help to increase the trust level too. Yeah. It gives you a chance to test drive the relationship with a very low risk. It's really a very low risk project. I mean, it's, it's the, compared to the software project itself, it'll be a fraction of the cost Mm -hmm. and they can get familiar with your communication style, your responsiveness, all that. And it, uh, yeah, so it builds, you're right. It builds up a lot of trust, assuming that it's going well. Yeah. Have you ever had a roadmap go poorly or demonstrate that this was not someone you wanted to work with? I have not. I've had, had that happen that on other projects, but not, not on a roadmap. I said I had that one where we went down basically the wrong rabbit hole. The relationship was good. I got a little bit of attention of more on my part of like, well, I just wasted, you know, two days worth of work that I, you know, you know quote, can't bill for. But you know, it wasn't, it wasn't that the roadmap was bad. It wasn't that the client or any of the relationship was bad. It was more of like a business cost type thing for me. Did you learn anything from that situation that would alert you to it in the future? Or was it just a total black swan type situation? Uh, first thing is to charge more to cover that. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think I, I think in that situation, it came down to budget. We originally thought that there was more budget in the project than expected. And once we actually dug into it a bit more, we found out there's less. And so I think if I drilled into that stronger and earlier at the beginning, that kind of could have framed it. Um, it's the typical thing. Like if you have a million dollars to build software, you're going to build completely different software than if you have 50,000. Right. So I want to talk about one other thing that, uh, I mean, we've talked about roadmaps and maybe we should kind of define the difference between the two. So the roadmap is the series of things that have to happen in order for the project to be successful. And the estimate is how long we think it's going to take to get it done or to get particular features done. Actually, I, I don't know. I would call the roadmap is the series of things, but it's also the collection of things. And to me, the roadmap includes the estimates, like the total project estimate or and, oh, and also the calendar time, you know, because sometimes it's not in the straight. I consider estimates to be like the actual individual discrete tasks or features. Okay. So like estimates go together into a roadmap that's that's how i look at it mm-hmm. right. and my impression of that i mean again not having done it but my impression is that the, the roadmap document sort of is almost a justification slash research for the estimates yeah you know your your goal is to get the roadmap your client really doesn't care if it takes you one hour or a month to do user authentication they care that there is user authentication and that it's done in a certain amount of time that the project is complete so, you know, the roadmap is like, here's the thing the client wants, but to build the roadmap, we have to drill into it and, you know, put in user authentication, how long will it take and all that. Mm-hmm. A good maybe litmus test for people who are trying to get their heads around this is that it's, it would be extremely common for me to provide wireframes in a roadmap. It's like a paid, mm-hmm. um, the ones that I've done have been very designy where people have an idea for a web app or an iOS app or some kind of app. And they kind of just have the business idea. 
and they want to, and it's going to be made from scratch. And how big is the scope? You know, I don't know how big the scope is. You know, you could go back to your room and get together and you guys could do a bunch of wireframes and you could send them to me to get my head around it. But you guys don't do that kind of stuff. You guys are business people and, and aren't familiar with Balsamic or Keynote or any of the things that you might prototype in. So why don't we start off what could be a gigantic project with $5,000 road mapping session where, you know, I just interview you guys. We go through this thing. You end up with all these wireframes. We talk about what all the features would be, estimate how big it would be once we have that. And it's way more detailed. And like to me, the est- an estimate means like from back in the day is something that I would do on an hourly engagement where they need to get some kind of ballpark of what they're getting themselves into financially. And that would be you have a couple of conversations with them over the phone. You maybe get access to the existing system and the changes they want to make to it. And, you know, we used to have a formula where we would ballpark out, okay, this number of screens with these number of widgets we know is roughly going to boil down to this. So we just multiply it out and end up with this number that we always exceed. (laughs) Yeah, you just articulated why I hate estimates. I just don't do them anymore. I don't do them. I give people a price. This is the price. I I must admit that part of my attraction of moving more and more solidly into the training niche is that I just avoid these problems entirely, which, you know, is very easy to say because, like, it means, oh, well, I'm not doing software development for other people anymore. I'm just doing it for my own projects. But it's such a refreshing change to say to people, here is the price for a day full. And they say, okay, and it's done, (laughs) as opposed to, (laughs) well, it might take me three hours to teach them. It might take me five hours. Yeah, it just goes away. And it's just, it's such an agitation to have to negotiate with people over this. Because, like, I don't know, I mean, does it happen to you guys that you say, well, I think it'll take a month? And they say, really? Can you try to do it in two weeks? Like, does that ever happen with you? That's two questions, though. What, like, are they really asking you about the calendar time or are they asking you about the money? Usually, yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. I find that people do have concerns about both, but they're wildly different. Their concern about the calendar is unless there's some kind of trade show event or something that they can't control – Deadlines can always, almost always move. The yes, budget right. is usually a lot less flexible. So when they're asked, so the, the first thing I would say to someone who asked, oh, is it really going to take that long? I would immediately be like, are you worried about the actual delivery date or are you worried about the cost? And completely separate those two things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, smart. and see, it's a bit different for me. Like, I'm thinking back to a project I had, God, seven years ago now? Okay. Yeah, that's a long time. Um, and I mean, I did, it was one of my first fixed bids and I, you know, estimated it out, added my buffer into the hourly stuff because that's how I was doing it back then. And, you know, came in and some of the features were wildly over. Some of them were under, some of them were like, I can't believe like this really that simple. And I mean, I think I ended up like not, I think I was building less than my hourly rate on that. I ended up like I, I took a bit too long on it, but I still have fond memories of that. Like I actually enjoy you know, estimating, breaking it down, you know, the client pushback, gets a bit annoying, but I, I think what really helped me more recently is I got away from kind of estimating in hours and actually, let's be honest, like not even full hours, like quarter hours, like, oh, this will take 15 minutes or this was like 30 minutes. And now I estimate in days, like it's, you know, the smallest unit, mm-hmm. unless something's really like inconsequential code wise is a day. And so if I say, yeah, this will take one to four days to build this section, that gives me a lot of room and that kind of, you know, lets me have these larger chunks of features. So it's not like I'm saying it's going to take me 15 minutes to make this screen, 15 minutes to put this widget on this screen, 15 minutes to put this other widget on there. I say it's going to take me a day to build this screen and all the widgets on it. Or even better, it's going to take me five days to build the user signup feature, which includes four screens. And I think that has really helped. And looking back at the project I'm on right now, even if I break out the estimates I have for the roadmap on this one into the hours and base compare that to what I'm actually like tracking in my time management system, like I'm actually really good on my estimates. Like I'm, I'm under or I'm right around the midpoint, right where I thought I would be. Um, even for the, the riskier, like the lower confidence estimates. And I think it's just, I mean, I, I've always enjoyed it. I think, you know, estimating is kind of a skill that you have to continuously work on to keep, you know, be good at and to know 
where you are if you're if you always estimate high or always estimate low. But I, I, mean, to- be- I completely agree with that. It, it should be something that people are getting better at. It's not really an argument. It's just sort of a corollary to that is that you won't really get better at it unless you put your skin in the game because you have no real incentive to get better at it if you're not giving fixed bids. You're just like, oh, maybe I'll maybe I'll hit it. Maybe I won't. And if I don't, then I'll just have I'll fight with the client for a month and maybe I'll eat some hours and then move on to the next project. I think you can do it if you if you even if you're doing hourly myself, I don't like having conflict, even if it's like healthy conflict, like with a client you know, critique me of why am I two hours over? And so knowing like I went two hours over on this, I got to go to the client and tell them it took longer, or even ask them permission to take longer. That is enough pain for me internally that I tell myself I need to get better at estimating those type of stuff in the future. I think the thing that really makes estimates a pain point for me is that it usually devolves into some point of contention with the client. You know, even if you delivered everything they needed before they needed it, blah, 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 blah. You know, you, you told them one thing or they heard one thing and for whatever reason, they don't feel like that's what they got. And so even if you communicated clearly about what specific things we're going to, we're going to take and what was going to be involved, I've just found that in a lot of cases, you still don't get that support or buy-in because, you know, they decided that they heard something else. That's actually rare for me. I mean, I I really stress communications and have a lot of feedback and check-in points with my clients. And so, I mean, I, that does come up, but when it comes up, it's usually like, hey, you're going down the wrong route, not like you're already far down there. I think the only time when it has happened is when either myself or the client really did a very poor job of communicating. And if we drilled into it, like questioning what's going on, we can usually spot that and a client will either admit like, yeah, I just didn't read that email. I'm sorry. You know, let's just correct it. Or on my part, like I was rushed and just told them the wrong thing or didn't explain it clearly. That's fair. And it does match up with my experience. But the thing that stresses me out is, you know, the contention. And I just, that's the part I remember (laughs) because that's the part, that's the part where I have these heightened emotional experiences where I'm just not happy. Yeah. And maybe that's how you're put together. You know, like I said, how I am, like, I don't like conflict. And so I'd, I'd rather be very vocal, very communicative to avoid that conflict. And maybe that's just something you need to address. You know, maybe, maybe you shouldn't do estimates. Maybe you should do fixed bids. Like they fit your business, your personality, your work style the best. And I think that might be something to explore is like, you know, what stuff works best for you, even if like, we'll say, you know, everyone's all the rage for value-based fees right now, but if that doesn't fit you know, the collection of you and your stuff, then it doesn't doesn't really make sense to kind of shove that peg into the hole and make it fit, even if it's not going to work. Yeah. Fixed bids, value-based fees and fixed bids, they do drastically decrease the conflict, though. Yes. It's because I, you're putting your ass on the line and the client never has that. Like, I don't I, Here's a good question. How many of you guys have hired someone by the hour to do dev work for you? And I don't mean on a client project. I mean for your own personal thing. I have. <laughs> I have, and it was a, an enlightening experience for sure. Isn't it? Because all of a no, sudden I mean, you, like, don't, you don't hear from that person for a week, and you're like, oh, my God, has she been working for 40 hours? And you're, like, you're just I'm in a constant state of freak out when I hire someone by the hour to work remotely because you have no idea until you get that invoice and then like you worked, I, I have a story where somebody, I had somebody just like, Oh yeah, I need somebody to redesign my personal site. It's not a big deal, but you know, I know you just left this company and you could probably use the work and I know you're good. I've seen your stuff. Let's talk, you know, so we get started or whatever. The first week he worked like 80 hours. So my first, <laughs> invoice, my first invoice was over $3,000 and he wasn't even like, And so, and you know, my bad for not saying, setting like a maximum of 10 hours a week or insisting that he have a design review with me every $500 or something, but the design sucked and I hated it. So is that my fault? Maybe. Is it his fault? Maybe. The bottom line is it doesn't matter whose fault it was. I will never hire that guy again. See what I mean? So like if you don't, it, it just completely changes the internal the client's internal gut feeling about you in every way. Even if he crushed the design and I loved it, it was too much money. 
And I, I was left out of the process and I was always wondering if the clock was ticking or not. And then when I found out it was ticking and he had burned like crazy midnight oil on it, I was mad. And I didn't, I didn't even, he, you know, he's probably listening to the show. I didn't even tell him that. I just paid it and never talked to him again and just took it as a learning experience. It's actually that, that is, that was something that happened after I had moved over to fix bids, but man, did it cement the lesson. I would much rather take on the risk and not be freaking my customers out constantly with this like, oh, are you working? Are you working today? How much work did you do? And it sounds yeah. like Eric addresses that by being incredibly communicative, but that's maybe not conducive to everyone's style. It's like not my, it's not, I like to touch base with customers with an ongoing project. You know, I'll send them an email. I'll touch them once a day, but I'm not going to have like crazy phone calls like every other day or something like that. That's just, just more overhead that I don't want to deal with. So, yeah, I, I mean, and I'm thinking like, I mean, I'm doing weekly billing right now, so that's, that's kind of mitigated a little bit, but when I was doing hourly, even when it was great, when it was crazy hourly and it was like multiple clients during one week, I would email the client and, you know, give them updates, you know, at least once a day or something, if they weren't like active in a project management system. And some of them I actually would use like their red mine or whatever, and actually be logging time into their system. So they could, if they want to actually see, oh, what is he actively working on? What does he kind of bill us for? But I think going all the way back, I mean, I've always had some kind of budget in place, whether it was a total budget for the project. So if I want to burn midnight oil and just get a bunch of hours this week, I could do that. Or it was like, you know, here's the weekly amount of hours or the the monthly amount of hours. So like I wouldn't actually go over a cap that we set ahead of time. And if I was going to, or if I felt like, you know, the project is kind of needing more time, I would bring it up to the client and be like, hey, you know, here's the reasons why. It's up to you if you want to approve or reject it. It's your decision. And like you said, it might just be me. It might just be my over-communication in general. Um, that's just, I learned that early on, like most clients were afraid of working with a consultant. And so communicating a lot actually helped, you know, alleviate that fear and also built the relationship up a lot faster. Yeah, I, I have to say that first off, when I've had these problems, usually it's either, yeah, I got busy and I didn't communicate well, or the client disappeared on me for, you know, weeks at a time and then came back and freaked. The other thing is, is, yeah, it's almost always been on hourly projects. And so, yeah, the conversation's completely different because then it's like, well, what did you spend all your time on instead of, you know, well, what value did I get for these weeks? Or, you know, I, I don't feel like I got fair value for the overall cost of the project. Right. Yeah, I, I think I had a client mention that once and it wasn't for the whole project. It was for the feature. It was along the lines of like, you know, looking back the amount of time and amount of money they spent on that feature. They didn't think there was a ton of value there. And they were I think they were slightly disappointed with that. But that was just a portion of the project, which they're happy with. So it was more of they're just giving me good critical feedback about it. And so, you know, there's nothing we could do at that point. But we're like, OK, that's fine. And, you know, they became a repeat client after that. But yeah, that's I could see that if it's on a bigger project, if they feel like you burned a lot of time on it and there's no value or um, we were talking about earlier, if there's the value you delivered is hidden value, it's not like very visible to them or visible to their customers, but they spent a lot of money on it. That can be that's a really hard sell and you have to really play up the benefits and the risks and really go above and beyond on communication so they understand the value. Yeah. And even then, if they don't understand it, then. I found that sometimes they're still upset just because there's just no way that you can make them understand what the value really was that you brought. Eric was just saying that I, I should uh, describe this latest client that I've been dealing with or soon to be former client that I've been dealing with where, I mean, we came in and this was a, a project and they came to us actually and they said, well, you know, we have this Ruby software that someone else, you know, Rails software that someone else developed and he was totally uncommunicative and so we need someone to take over the development and help us with it. And, you know, everything seemed pretty good and we went and talked to them and gave them, basically we didn't even give an estimate or a road mapping because it was so obvious, like it's in months and months of stuff to do. I, I said to them, tell me what your three most painful things are with the software right now, what's missing or what doesn't work, that if we were to fix them, it would improve. And I think I literally got a list of 30 things. And I said, okay, let's try the counting thing again. Oh, <laughs> like, how about sign. three things? <laughs> I was like, I, and I thought, okay, I can teach these people, right? I can teach them to prioritize. 
but in terms of the communication, um, we set a red line, and I said, like, here are the different tasks that's going in, and let's try to communicate. And I, I think to some degree it was like wildly mismatched expectations, where they thought the communication was us coming into their office all the time and seeing how they work so that we could then go off and develop software. And our feeling of communication was, well, we're talking to you on the phone. Like we had twice weekly meetings on the phone, and we were using Redmine, and we were emailing them with updates, and we were working on the software with the emergency. Basically, there was an emergency situation that we discovered that we had to take care of before we even got to seeing how they work with the software. So, like, after one month, basically, it's clear we have very, very mismatched expectations in terms of what's possible to do in the amount of time they're willing to pay for, they've budgeted for, and how people expect to communicate. And um, they basically called me yesterday and said, well, we're sort of willing to give it another go. And my employee and I talked it over a little more yesterday and today, and we said, well, we're not. <laughs> like, it's going to be too painful and too long and too dragged out all the time with us trying to convince each other, no, no, the way we want to communicate is the right way. I think we talked about this on the Red Flags episode where one of the things that came up was that if you have just different communication styles or it's just like if you can afford not to take the client on, it might be a good choice because – it just gets so tedious and it sets you so, sets you up for a lot of finger pointing later in the project. Right. Yeah, and, right. and what I, I like to do is ask my client or even if it's a lead at that point, like how do you like to communicate or, you know, I'll give examples. Like I use a project management system and that works good. Here's what it, what it entails. I can also do something lighter weight and just email you updates once a day or, you know, every like three days, three, yeah, three times a week, you know, and then have a meeting on Friday and Monday. And it's nice if you can, if you can propose those ideas, sometimes they'll be like, yeah, those don't work for us. We want you in our, in our building every day at nine o'clock and stay here till five. And I'll be like, nope, see ya. <laughs> That's communication, right? You're there every day. Yeah. And I mean, some people want that. I mean, that's the, the whole yeah. draw of the on-site developer, on-site, you know, freelancer slash consultant slash contractor slash you're an employee, but the IRS is going to slap their hands about it. You know, and I, it's one of those, you know, like, like Jonathan said, it's a red flag. And if you could fill that out ahead of time, it's better, but sometimes you can't. Yeah. Right. Which, which is why, and here I'll stress what I've, I've said before about this project. Boy, is it a good thing that we got paid in advance, right? Cause that, that just, <laughs> reduced a huge amount of discussion, anger, agita, tension, <laughs> finger pointing, and, and you name it. Because if they now feel like, well, we didn't do anything, which is what they feel, even though it's not true, right? And you didn't communicate, which I don't think is true either. But we avoid the argument. They've paid for it. Now the question is, do both sides want to continue working together next month? And the answer, at least on our side, is no. Like, we don't, we don't need it, and we don't need these sorts of headaches, Whereas, you know, if they hadn't paid in advance, I'd be calling them every day and it would just be boiling my blood. Right. And that's why if if you're going to if you're getting started with a client, I, I sometimes recommend doing a trial project where you do a week or maybe two weeks or, you know, if you do hourly kind of that amount of work with a client, that's your contract. You commit to it going into it, knowing we don't know if this is going to work if it's going to be a good fit or if I can help you. But let's try this, see how it works, and then we can negotiate something larger at the end of it. Um, I've done that a few times and then bailed out because either the skills I have is not the best fit for them, they don't have the budget, the communication isn't there, they're not active, you know, whatever reason. But having that trial, like it gives both parties kind of a good escape lever. They can say, nope, I don't want to do this. Let's, let's just shake hands and part on good terms and walk away. Mm, nice. That is very smart. Have you ever done that in combination with road mapping, or is road mapping an initial project that you can use then to sort of test the waters? Uh, both. I've done road mapping is a really good initial project. Like I said, for the companies or the clients who want kind of a, a more of a plan based approach, um, but it also can serve as a trial project. You know, it can be a you know because you're you're on the phone, you're doing a lot of the communication. Um, in my case, like it's pretty much all communication. Maybe a little bit of like development research of like library A or library B. And that's communication dealing with the client. That's usually where your problems are going to come from. Um, most projects, at least what I have found, they don't get killed by the technical or the implementation side. They get killed based on client expectations, your expectations, and problems that come up along that. Yeah, it's almost never technical. Mm. It's always budget and bad assumptions. 
So this this all reminds me of an adjacent topic that I just want to do a quick shout out to. Maybe we could do a show on it at some point. But since we're talking about estimates and that sort of thing, a cool thing that seems to be a trend is productized services. And I'm actually kind of a big fan of this where you've got what training is almost is almost one of them. It's like a productized service It's that ruins delivering a service, but it's a product. He's got a, a price for it. There's a sales page for it, I'm sure. And it's got details. And this is the hamburger you're going to buy. It's two dollars. <laughs> and and even though it's a high touch delivery, it's still a, a menu item, essentially. And I'm seeing, you know, I'm in a mastermind where a bunch of people are, it's is centered around creating productized services. And it's pretty cool in terms of just being able to say, here's what I do. Here's what it can do for people. And here's how much it costs. And if you're the right kind of person in the right stage of your business, you can expect these kinds of results, which will make the price, you know, extremely affordable. And Mm -hmm. it, it creates a value based fee type of model, but it turns it around in a way, it kind of flips it on its head and allows your potential clients to self-select based on how much value they think they would get out of this kind of a thing. So you never have to do a proposal. You never have really a, you know, maybe I actually have uh, some people fill out an application just to make sure that I agree that they're going to get some value out of it because I also offer a money back refund. So I want to make sure that I'm engaging with people who are going to capitalize on it and and make the money back. But it flips the whole thing around, but it still operates on the same fundamental principles of a value-based approach. And it completely just, you know, completely sidesteps the hourly thing and estimates and proposals and all of that, which is really interesting. Yeah, that's actually a lot of how I've done the road mapping stuff. Uh, Road mapping is kind of weird. It's you know, because it's actually been packaged up like that, you know, by other companies. So it's kind of more known, but I've seen that I've actually, for the past four, actually five months, I've been working on, you know, productizing some of the services I offer. Um, they've been kind of hidden. They're not really public. I'm trying to, trying to test them out before I launch with them. But yeah, it's, it's the idea of, you know, you fix the price, you fix the scope the customer would self-select to figure out what level of value they get, but the value is pretty fixed or is fixed within a range. So they know if they're going to sign it for this, they're going to get X to Y amount of value. And yeah, it's supposed to really help out on, you know, the salesmanship of it. And actually like, you know, when you're doing it, you can also really refine your process. So you're not like going completely custom. You can actually say like, yes, I know we're going to do steps one, two, three, four, five, and then you will get your, you know, whatever it is you bought and it will give you the exact value you need. Right. I mean, it's, it's definitely true though that, I mean, the, the proposals that I have to do for training are just laughably easy, short and small and non-negotiable compared to the, you know, the, the project ones. Uh, yeah. Cause basically I'm saying to a company, here's my course. I mean, exactly as you said, Jonathan, here's my course. Here's what I'm proposing in terms of price. And usually they've also come to me. They've said, we really want to hire you to do XYZ course. And I say, okay, great. And they, they sometimes have to chase me down to do a proposal because it's like they really want it so much. <laughs> but it's, it, there's no, you know, I mean, sometimes there are companies where they'll say, really, that's the price. I don't know. Let's negotiate. But fortunately, there are enough, you know, fish in the sea or however, whatever the analogy is you want to use there that I don't have to worry about that too much. Mm. Well, it also yeah. starts a discussion. I mean, if, if they're coming to you for training and saying, like, we love everything about your training, we love the, the value you're going to provide the topics, but we don't agree on the price, you could do something custom for them, whether it's higher price, lower price, you know, whatever. Um, or maybe like, hey, we agree on this, but we want you to cover this extra module. And so it, it ends up, it's a kind of a lead generator for your actual custom stuff. But, you know, you have this this framework you can go on and this kind of idea and concept that they could actually see and figure out and sell themselves on before they actually get started and contact you. Precisely. precisely. And I mean, one of the things that I'm working on slowly but surely is redoing my website so that it'll have, you know, it'll be very clear. These are the courses I offer. Here are the syllabi. Oh, you want custom modules? Great. You know, talk to me, call me, let's discuss it. Um, and I'll charge you for that, but people will know because they'll know that they're going outside the boundaries of what's normally expected and, and, you know, part of the package. Right. And they'll be anchored against the price of the non-custom one. Yeah. Right. 
But the, the nice part about the productized consulting thing is that you can make it, I think Kurt Elster has been on the show. I'm not positive. Yes. Um, he has a really, really successful productized service called Website Rescues for Shopify store owners. And he's getting enough leads in business that he can adopt an attitude of buy, don't buy, I don't care. You know, it, he's much more interested in, I, I don't think he does any custom work anymore. And he's much more interested in automating his uh, his workflow and creating systems to deal with the flood of leads and how to set his pricing and how to do delivery. And he's, he's really, it's really changed the way he does business. And it's super interesting to me from a development background. If I was still doing a lot of development, I would be going full force in this direction of just finding expensive problems that can be solved with software development for a group of people who stand to benefit greatly from it. Like, Ruben, you, you mentioned the things that you were going to put on your website, but you didn't say what they should expect to get out of it, which should be the very first thing on the page. And Kurt's, like, amazing at that, where it's like, the, the very first thing is, here's what you can expect to get after working, after after paying for a website rescue. And it's That's just... That's right. And, you know, for people that have, you know, whatever, uh, noobs that have little stores that sell the used books out of their basement they're not going to be able to afford it because it doesn't make sense for them. But he never has to talk to those people because the price is, I don't even know what the price is, but I'm sure that my grandmother who's trying to get rid of her old Daniel Steele novels is not going to pay him. But, you know, somebody who's got an actual, you know, million, $2 million a year business selling jeans or something, they'll be all over them because they see immediately that the benefits are wildly exceed the cost. That's right. Yeah, he's done really good at self or not self. Yeah, selecting what market he works for. So you know, he's not working on the very low end, and he's not working on the very high end. Where I'm just saying, because this is you know a local company, but Nike is not coming to him saying we want to rebuild our entire e-commerce system. You know, so he's like, here's my area, here's the people in that area I can help. I help them with this problem. If someone comes to me and they don't fit that, this is what I do. I refer them off. I just decline it completely. You know, whatever. And I, th I think that's really important. Like I did that a while ago when I was just focusing on Redmine and it was, I didn't do it to the extent that Kurt has done it. I did it like, if you want Redmine work and you could pay certain rates, I would probably work with you. You know, Kurt's really, he's really optimized that I've talked to him a lot. Like he's done a lot of good stuff with it. That's a good business model. That's a good way to run your business if you want to go that route versus, you know, doing the custom stuff all the time. Right, right. And I, I, I must admit, I mean, when I heard that Kurt was doing like Shopify optimization, I said, really? Really? Is there that much of a, you know, business in market in there? And boy, is there. <laughs> it was very clever. That's the funny thing is that the scale, like human mind's not great at giant scale. It, like our brains just don't grok it. I was talking to someone the other day about focusing, you know, trying to switch. He's a, a solo consultant doing software development. But he's a complete generalist. His list, his list of his last 10 clients was almost laughably heterogeneous. It was just like a food delivery service, a pet shelter. I, it, was, it was insane. Uh, but that's, I think that's the experience for most people because they're just like, oh, I know how to do these powerful things with software and I can do They're beneficial for everyone, which is true. But it's really hard to sell to everyone. So if you are having a problem attracting clients or getting leads or that sort of thing, a very useful thing to do is focus on a particular market, even though I understand that you could build something for a dentist as well as you could build it for a school teacher. If you just focus on the dentists, then you can much more easily speak in their language and get in front of them. And, and I was having this conversation with him and he was like, yeah, but you know, he had the classic reaction, which is, yeah, but then I'm shutting out everybody who's not a dentist. And I was like, how many dentists do you think there are in the United States? And he said, I don't know, a couple million. And I was like, how many clients could you service in a year? And he was like, I don't know, 10. <laughs> <laughs> so right. end of story. Right. right. I mean, how many clients do you really need in a year is what it comes down to. Right. And, you know, are the new clients or repeating clients? There was years where I didn't pick up a single new client because I had my repeat clients, my past clients that just kept renewing or kept wanting more work. You know, so you, you, you might work for dentists in your local area and you work for five out of the 50 and that's all you do for the rest of your life. Like you never lose them. 
But I think one really interesting concept that I like about productized consulting is, like I was kind of saying earlier, you can refine your process and you can really pick and choose what you do. So I'll pretty much bet money. Kurt can actually look at a, a, a Shopify store now and within five minutes, give the client an estimate of like, it's going to take this much work and going to cost this much to do this thing. Like he has the domain experience. He has the, you know, the skills experience. He, all of the, or like in my case, like the confidence amounts have gone so high because he's done it over and over versus like you're talking about Jonathan, that other developer. And I know myself, I'm in so many different areas right now that I have, you know, I'm a, a jack of all trades type idea. Like it's going to take a bit hard. It's going to be a bit harder to get a better confidence because I'm in so many different things. And so that's, that's a nice little improvement, especially if, you know, you're talking Chuck, like it's hard for you to do estimates or hard to kind of nail down that stuff. You know, maybe focusing on something where you know at a drop of a hat, it's going to take, you know, X days to build this kind of feature. Like that might be an improvement you can do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like the idea of doing something like that where it's focused and, and well thought out because it's something that I've done a lot of. And that way, yeah, when somebody comes to me and says, hey, what, you know, what are we doing here? Then I can give them an estimate or, and I can give them a roadmap, a timeline, whatever you want to call it, however you want to look at it. But I, I can say, this is what it's going to take to put it together. This is how much it's going to cost. This is how long I think it's going to be. And, you know, basically I can just sell them the product for it and just make it go that way. Interesting. All right. Well, should we do some picks? Yes. Yeah. All right. I, Eric, can go. I got two. You want to start us off? Yeah, so I, I'll put a link in, or I won't. Mandy will do it because I don't know how to put it in there. But I'll I'll give you a link to my sample trial map. I have a sales page for it, but for some reason I haven't actually updated and put the sample on there. But I'm willing to share it with everyone. It's just a very basic, you know, I said it's 25 pages, but it, you could read through it if you know software development and see kind of how I organize all this and how I do estimates. So I'll make that my first pick. My second pick is a book. I read, I guess, in the past few weeks, it was a very hard book, not hard as in like, you know, boring, but hard as in like, there's tons of concepts and I kept having to reread to really drill into it. But it's called Anti-Fragile, Things That Gain From Disorder. Not even going to try to pronounce the author's name. Um, he's written The Black Swan, Full by Randomness, all that stuff. Uh, it's very interesting. It's, I think he was in derivative, so like very financial, but he's looking at kind of how different things can be affected by events like, you know, stock market crashes, um, that sort of idea. And the first half was a lot of background stuff. But in the second half, I think every few pages, I was like taking notes of like how it's going to affect my business or even like the software development industry in general of how like how the industry is actually responds to certain things. Um, and it was pretty interesting, pretty enlightening about like you know, my career path, how it happened, I could actually take some of these principles and apply it to the past and see like, yeah, that's exactly what happened. So I, I highly recommend it. It is a difficult book to get through. Um, he gives a lot of examples, which kind of will help, you know, cement the concepts, but it is worth it. It's a good kind of, you know, read a little bit each day type book. All right, Reuben, what are your picks? Okay, so I also have a book for a pick, but it's a slightly lighter one. It's a children's book that I just read with my nine-year-old. It is so fantastic. It's called The Terrible Two. And uh, the basic storyline is that this kid comes to a new school, and he was the best prankster at his old school. And he arrives and discovers there's someone who's better at it than he is. And then, of course, you know the, the ultimate ending is that they end up pranking stuff together. It is incredibly funny it's very clever and i see that there's already a sequel planned that'll be coming out in january and the moment that i tell my nine-year-old this he's going to be extremely disappointed he has to wait so long until it happens so i i definitely definitely recommend the terrible two as a a fun children's book and also one for grown-ups to sneak when the children are asleep all right jonathan what are your picks uh okay so the first one is called inbox pause which, interestingly, is a Chrome extension that you can install, and uh, it actually affects all of your devices, which is good for me because I have a million devices. I've switched between phones <laughs> and computers and iPads and other tablets all day long. So uh, this works great for me, and it's a product that shouldn't need to exist but does exist because if most people are like me, they have really bad self-control about checking email. 
What it does is it just puts a pause button the top left-hand corner of your Gmail inbox. It's Gmail only. And you press the pause and it gives you a configuration screen that allows you to uh, set a couple of options. Uh, the most important option being when mail hits your inbox. And what it does is, you know, I've got it set for every two hours from 5 a.m. to 5 p.m. It sort of takes all of the pent-up email and it lets it into my inbox. So I get one gigantic notification on all my phones oh, and my wow. watches and everything. And I try to... It's funny because before I started using it, I thought I was pretty good about not checking my email constantly because I'll get notifications. I look at my watch and I'm like, oh, that's not important. I'll skip it. Another one comes in and I look at my watch. Oh, I won't worry about that until later. But now that they all come in at once, I realized that even just looking at my watch was a major, created this sort of cognitive distance. It would pull me out of the moment of whatever I was doing and distract me, even if I decided to ignore the email. And so now that they come in just in a, in a big lump batch every two hours, so far it has been awesome. And after five o'clock, I get no email until 5 a.m. the next day. And there have been a couple of, a couple of issues with it where I, like, I need to do a password reset and I need to get the email immediately. But what it does is it takes all of the email and it sets up a, a filter rule, if you're familiar with Gmail, and it puts all of the email into a skip you know, ask anything from asterisk, skip inbox and put in this custom folder that it creates. And then on this timed, uh, these periodic intervals, it then just takes everything out of that folder and puts it back in your inbox. So you can just go check that other folder if you're looking for, an, you know, an instant email, like a password reset or something. Uh, so that has been, uh, that has been really just wonderful. So I would suggest that people check that out. Um, another one that uh, has probably been mentioned on the show in the past, I don't know, but uh, Cloud App is a Macintosh app that you install, uh, and it puts a little menu item up at the top menu bar, along with you know your Wi-Fi and Dropbox and everything else. And uh, it does a bunch. It, it just makes sharing files so incredibly frictionless that I don't know how I could live without it. If you spend a lot of time in Slack or IM, whatever IM client you're in, uh, Twitter, whatever, if you're doing a lot of text and you tend to share links to files and whatnot, uh, you can just take a screenshot. It lands on the desktop or whatever watched folder you have, and it just automatically uploads it to this cloud service. And then it copies the URL to your clipboard. So in like two, not even two seconds, under two seconds, you can take a screenshot and just wait for the ding and then hit paste into whatever chat client you're in and uh, share that link to that file with people. But so people have probably heard about that before. But the new thing is that they added, it's a beta feature now, but they added a button on the web page for say a PDF or a, a, a PNG file. You can actually annotate it right in the browser. So a very common workflow for me is that I'll be chatting with uh, like my lead developer in Slack. I'll say, hey, I noticed a bug on the login error message or something. There's a typo. I'll take a screenshot. It automatically uploads. I hit Apple O. It opens it up and I can draw an arrow around the thing that has the typo and then just hit save and paste it into the uh, chat box. So it's like inst almost, almost instantaneous you know, sharing of files, annotated files. It's really, really cool. This sounds pretty great. Yep. Yeah, that's cloudapp.com. I think that's what it is. Well, we'll put a link. Get in the his getcloudapp.com. There you go. That's right. All right. Uh, I've got a couple of uh, things I'm going to share. The first one is a book. It's called Traction. Now, if you go look on Amazon, there are two books called Traction. Uh, one has a yellow cover, and it is about basically uh, finding and growing your customer base for your SaaS app. That's not the book I'm recommending. It's the other one by Gino Wickman. And uh, it's really awesome if you're running a small business. And it basically talks about how to organize your your company. It's built around this system he calls EOS, uh, which is kind of the entrepreneurial operating system. But it's just how you run your company. And uh, I got a lot of great ideas uh 
out of it and I'm implementing some of the stuff from it. And uh, so I just wanted to recommend that. So if you have people working under you or you're trying to solidify um, accountability and other things in your business, there are a lot of great, great ideas in there. The yellow one is great too. I read that one first and uh, it's awesome as well. But I think I've picked it on the show before. So another pick I have is 99designs. I used that to get the design done for Ruby Remote Conf. I actually got the design done for JavaScript Remote Conf and then I just changed the names to protect the innocent on it. So uh, why not, right? But anyway, I, I really like the work that I get done there. The other one that I'm going to pick is Fiverr. Um, I just had a basically one of those fancy schmancy email signatures pulled together for me. I just think they look professional and, you know, whatever. So I'm going to pick Fiverr as well. And, yeah, that's pretty much all I got. So I don't think we have anything else. So we'll wrap up and we'll catch you all next week. This episode is sponsored by Dev Mountain. Dev Mountain is a coding school with the best world-class learning experience you can find. Dev Mountain is a 12-week full-time development course. With only 25 spots available, each cohort fills quickly. As a student, you will be assigned an individual mentor to help answer questions when you get stuck and make sure you are getting the most out of the class. Tuition includes 24-hour access to campus and free housing for our out-of-state applicants. In only 12 weeks, you'll have your own app in the App Store. Learn to code. It's time. Go to devmountain.com slash freelancers. Listeners of The Freelancer Show will get a special $250 off when they use the coupon code freelancers at checkout. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com slash form.